Let's then turn in our Bibles to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today I'll be reading from verse 20 down to verse 26. And we'll look at them together. Chapter 20, verse 20 to 26. Let me read it to you. So they, that is the Pharisees, watched him, that is Jesus, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they, that is the Pharisees' spies, asked him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he, that is Jesus, perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Though whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Amen. Now we understand that we are in the, the last few days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the crucifixion. Before his glorification. And this is what's commonly called the, the, the time of the questions. When Jesus is teaching in the temple during the great festival. And his opponents, the authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the 70, the elders, they are actively trying to undermine him, actively trying to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They're looking for an excuse to seize him, arrest him, and do away with him. Remember that he has already stopped the merchandising of the temple. They're no longer selling any little key rings or pencil fobs or any other kind of merchandise that went on with the temple life. No longer are you hearing the bleeding of lambs, the cooing of doves and the mooing of... I was going to say elephants, I meant horses. Not horses, <laughs> cows, excuse me. Dementia setting in, I told you. The only sound that's being heard in the temple during this festival is Jesus' voice as he sits teaching the word of God. In the morning and evening times, the priests come out and they perform their prayers. They come out on the steps and they say their prayers and the people are gathered beneath them and there is Jesus among them and they are worshipping God as it has been prescribed Perhaps the first and only time the temple was ever really used for its purpose. And instead of rejoicing in this, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders are livid with anger. 
They are aside themselves. They despise Jesus. They despise the true and real religion of God. And they are doing all that they can in their hypocrisy to try and tear it down. To regain control of the temple. Can you imagine all of the money that they're losing? All of the business that is escaping through their fingers. The waste of this festival. Instead of us being able to exploit it, we're having to actually worship. What a waste. What a waste. Jesus is at work, doing his Father's work. And the Bible tells us here that these people, remember Jesus had just told the parable of the wine, the vine dressers, about the, uh, and he ends it with, with that the owner of the vineyard will come and take the vineyard away and give it to others. And they say, surely not. And he tells about the cornerstone. And they're, they're set back. And now we are told that they, are, they don't give up and they don't give in. Neither are they repenting. Instead of owning up to their sin, though they are fully aware that they are sinning, though they are convicted in some sense, now, not to a confession and repentance, but into a... They are convicted of their sins and instead of producing repentance, it, rebu- it produces a rebellion. Instead of bowing the knee, they want to now tear down Jesus. We are told here that spies are sent out. and What follows is a very coordinated attack. This story about the denarius, the taxes is the first part of the attack. The second part of the attack comes afterwards when Jesus is asked about the resurrection. And the attack comes by two different fronts. The first attack is political, economical. If we can get a schism, if we can show that he's against Rome, if we can get him to utter some kind of rebellion against Rome... We've got him. But if he's pro-Roman, if he, if he supports Caesar, that false god, well then we can demonstrate to the people that he's not the Messiah and he has no legitimacy and they should not be listening to him. And so they are seeking to cause a schism, a division between Jesus and either the The political world in which he lives. Or Jesus and the populace. The people from whom Jesus comes. They're very clever. They think they've got him. And if he goes this way they've got him. If he goes that way they've got him. Two dead end questions that end in Jesus being persecuted. The second attack I said comes through the Sadducees. Asking about the resurrection. And it's a religious question. Which is really interesting. The first question, which is political, comes from the religious party. The second question, which is religious, comes from the political party. I don't know. It's very interesting. 
This question, though it was short and to the point, is perhaps the most dangerous. Because if Jesus causes any disruption in Rome's ability to collect taxes, there will be swift and immediate consequences. The Romans don't mess around. The Romans don't take prisoners. They take off heads. And if you mess with the emperor's own tax, then you are in difficulty. I like the way that these, in Ireland we call them sleeked, slimy, secretive, they come, don't come at you directly. They kind of sneak around the side. Sly like a fox. And they come with this flattering way, this flattering tone, this pie-pie kind of way. You know, this, this kind of, I'm your friend. Oh, Jesus, you're so good. And they say to him, this statement, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and that you do not show favoritism or personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Now, that was completely and utterly correct. You are seeing an insight into Jesus from his enemies. They understand the genuineness of Jesus. They understand he's the real deal. He's 100% legitimate. They find no ability. There's nothing to him or in him that they can complain about. They recognize what everybody else recognizes. And they're just stating fact. But of course we understand that they're not doing it to celebrate him or honor him. They're trying to do it to lay the foundation for their trap. They're trying to put him off balance. They're trying to win favor with him. They're trying to get him off guard. They're trying to position him to a place where he's going to have to be trapped. And either condemning Rome or supporting Rome, both of those roads lead to danger and death for Jesus. And they come in this crafty way. But the Bible says, oh, then they asked their question, sorry. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this, this tax that they're talking about, it's a very specific tax. It's the Caesar tax. It is the tax that you pay, in, it goes directly to Caesar. It's not necessarily a Roman tax, a tariff, an income tax. It is the tax that you pay to Caesar to recognize that Caesar is king. Now, the Romans recognized that Caesar was more than king. He was the, the, the king Maximus, Pontimus Maximus. You know, he was the, the great king, the, the, the king of kings, the lord of lords, God. He was a demigod in some sense. There was the cult of Caesar. And Caesar proclaimed himself that he was a god among men. And so therefore he had the right to tax people. English kings used to do the same. French kings used to do the same. They had their own personal tax that you had to pay to them. Not to the state. The state didn't get anything of it. It went directly to the the king. And so the spies of the Pharisees are asking about this tax. 
Because it's a tax that recognizes Caesar as king. The king of kings, the lord of... You know, I think I've said this before, in the Roman Empire there were many little kings, regional kings. But over all those kings, over all the kings of the earth, the Caesars used to like to say, there was the one great king and he was Caesar. They used to take the little piece of incense and rub it over the, the, the little brazier, the little altar. Caesar is God. Caesar is king. And that way they would show their devotion to him. And you'd pay your little bit of money. You know, in the slot it went and they would just pass you by. Christians in the end couldn't do that in the New Testament. New Testament era. And it led to the, the, the tribulation for many the persecution of many, where they went to the arenas where they were slaughtered. I read in the Fox's Book of Martyrs of an entire Roman legion that was made up of Christian men who could not make, and they were a celebrated and awarded legion. They had fought many battles for Rome and won many battles, gave many tributes But in the end, they could not say, Caesar is God. They would say, Jesus is God. And Caesar made an example. He killed one out of every ten men to try and change their opinions. And when I say killed, they killed them. They tortured them. They were terrible. And they said, will you not now recant and confess? And Jesus is God. They took out another one every nine men. And so it went down, it went down until it got to the final few. And they just said, we might as well kill us all because no one's going to recant. And they removed that legion from history. They literally took the, the, the memory. They removed it. They killed everybody and everybody that was associated. The Romans were very thorough. In their assassinations. So that's the tax that, that the spies of the Pharisees are asking about. Is it legal? Is it right? Is it morally correct? For we who recognize there is no other God but God. And if you are the Messiah then you are king. Because they knew that the Messiah was the king of Israel. Is it right for you then to pay homage to another king? Is Caesar greater than you? And the Bible says here, but Jesus understood their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? I like the fact that he didn't even play their game. He didn't have a debate with them. He didn't try and prove to them their error. He just exposes them for what they are. Why are you trying to trap me? Why are you trying to test me? The word for test here is to bend like you would with a metal. Try to try. Why are you trying to, to, to test me? And he says, show me a denarius. I like this. Jesus didn't have any money. <laughs> show me a denarius. Denarius is a single coin. On one side it has the, the image of the emperor. It was Tiberius. And on the other side it had a picture of a woman in a chair with a shield and a spear. You may have seen it. They have it on the British 50p. Have you seen her? And it has the, the name Pontimus Maximus, the great king, the king of kings. 
And they show Jesus this coin, this denarius. And he asks them the simple question, whose image, what does it say? And they answer and says, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus answers with this wonderful answer. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, as I was studying for this this week, so much about paying taxes. So much about how it is the Christian's duty to pay taxes. I look at you, brother, because we've had this before. And I, and I was reading through it, and, and I just, but I don't get the sense that that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not giving a lesson on paying taxes. Now, he recognizes the legitimacy of taxes, but his emphasis is not upon the denarius. His emphasis is on the second part of his statement. But render to God the things that are God's. So he's not legitimizing taxes, nor a king's ability to raise taxes. He acknowledges that such things exist, and such things must happen. But his emphasis is on, as Caesar has the right to require from you the things that are his... God then has the same legitimate right to require from you the things that are his. That in the same way you must give your taxes and that you do give your taxes to Caesar or the state. You are then dutifully required to pay your tax to God. Like none of us, God, I hope not, especially you, brother, would... Be reluctant in paying our taxes. None of us cheat our taxes. When we are paid, our taxes go from our salary to the uh, state. We pay our insurances. We weekly, monthly, yearly pay our taxes. None of us even would consider not doing it. Again, brother, forgive me, but you know, we've had these conversations. Why? Because we are lawful people who are good people and we pay our taxes. In the same way, Jesus is saying, as you do that, so must you give your tax to God. So must you give to him what is his. What is he talking about? You must love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind and strength. He's not saying that it's a one-time deal. Well, I, I ask Jesus into my heart. I give him my heart. He's my saviour, but not necessarily my Lord. And then, you know, that's me done. I had a conversation with a brother this week, a pastor from another church in another country. And he was saying that he has had a problem teaching his church that there is the obligation of law-keeping upon the Christian. That Christians are required to keep the law of God, not just the law of the land, but the law of God and his congregation have said to him, but we are under grace, not law. It's completely right. But that is in regard to salvation. We cannot gain our salvation by law keeping. We gain our salvation through grace, through the act and the mercy of God. But the Bible says is part of the sign of the New Testament that The laws of God shall be written upon our hearts. 
upon our inner man. They shall be part of our spiritual DNA. When you squeeze us, the law of God will come out. We will be faithful. We will hold to it. Why? Not because it's a foreign thing that we are holding to, because it's in our heart. It's who we are. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And here Jesus is saying to these religious spies seeking to cause a schism with him between him and the empire. And he brings the question right back to religion on them. You recognize this. This is Caesar's image. You recognize that his law is written on the other side. But you also recognize that you were created in the image of God. And that his law is written on your heart. And whether you're a believer or not, you know what is right and wrong. You know the law of God. You know it's wrong to lie. You know it's wrong to steal. You know it's wrong to commit adultery. You know it's wrong to be greedy and covet, to covet other people's things. So much so that it just eats you up inside. You know that it's wrong to take God's name in vain. You know it's wrong to worship idols and the things of this world. Whether you're a believer or not. Jesus is pointing out to these men their hypocrisy. And God's right for worship. And they're taken aback by it. All they saw was the Roman Empire or the populace. And either Jesus is going to go this way or Jesus is going to go that way. And Jesus just stepped over their game, didn't play their way, and brought them back to a right relationship with God. Great lessons there for you and I. When we are approached and people seek to entrap us, how are, we, are we to play their games, debate with them, argue with them, try and, and come to some sort of middle ground and understanding? Jesus didn't even play that game. He just directed them to the obligation that God had laid upon their hearts. That God demands from all men worship. From every man, woman and child on this planet, we're all commanded to repent of our sins and to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. To recognize that only his death, only his action on our behalf can rescue us from the wrath of God that is to come. It's only his life that can save us in death. We are called to give ourselves to God. You carry the image of God in you. You are a living being. There is a part of the divine. And I'm not saying you're little gods. Please understand that. God breathed life into you. There is a spark of God's life in you. Through sin. That life was marred. 
and warped and twisted. I'm saying God was warped or marred or twisted. But the life that you live and the consequences to that. Now you and I as believers, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that there is an obligation for worship. A whole being worship. In spirit and in truth worship. Now, please get your mind out of Sunday service worship. I'm not talking about singing or lifting up your hand or listening to worship songs or saying hallelujah. You know, I love the word hallelujah. We should say hallelujah a lot more. You know, I think it's just one of those really interesting words. My Bible is translated everything to praise the Lord. And I just think that's a bit of a letdown. I like the hallelujah one. Last week when I was in Uviscula and I listened to them reading the Bible in Finnish. And the, word, the only word I understood in the entire thing was hallelujah. And I was like, I recognize that word. Amen, praise God. I'm with it. Yes. There is the obligation set upon you and upon me, not just as believers, but as all human beings. Is it only Christians that carry the image of God within themselves? No, all human beings are required to give God worship. Now, if we don't pay our taxes, what happens? What happens if you don't pay your tax? I know firsthand what happened. My father was a man who was guilty of not paying his taxes. We, my dad owned a large company, large, average size company. He had several lorries and, 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 and vans and he delivered coal. He was a coal man, self-employed coal man. Okay, I don't know what you know. You don't, you're all too young to know what that is. He carried sacks of coal, 50 kilogram, 50 kilogram bags of coal and he would put them in people's houses in their coal shacks. And it, it was very, it wasn't very pro, uh, profitable, but it was profitable. But my dad, foolishly and stupidly, did not pay his tax. One year, two years, three years, four, five years perhaps. And the government came after him. And he lost everything. He lost the house that we lived in. He lost all his vans. He lost his, his rights. Everyone, you, you bought an area. He lost it all. Had to sell everything. Liquidated everything. The family was broken up. And then he was fined by the government. They punished him. And they doubled. The, 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 the taxes that were missing were then doubled in cost. There was tremendous. There was a tremendous price for neglecting to pay his taxes. Financially and socially, it broke our family up. It was terrible. And my beloved, if the state goes that far, if men take it seriously enough to take all that a man has and then to burden him with even more, to punish him at the cost of his family, at the cost of his life, to leave a man broken have nothing if the state is prepared to do that consider the authority of heaven because the debt we owe heaven far surpasses any debt that you could ever run up here on earth when you consider the cost 
of eternal life. God's own blood. He had to come down and live a life as a man. Live a life perfect in obedience. And then to give himself sacrificially so on the behalf of those who were wicked and against him. Those who were in actual rebellion. People who did not love him or want him or recognize him. Who condemned him and mocked him. That's you and me. And yet God gave himself, the creator of the universe, the great I am. He gave himself the sinless lamb. He gave himself so that you and I could have eternal life. A life that never passes away. A life that never comes to an end. And not just in quantity, but in the quality of life. A perfect life that will never experience pain or disappointment or let down. That you will never go tired nor weary nor be worried. In heaven there is no corona. There is no fear of corona. You don't get social broadcasts warning people about the dangers of stress related to corona. Why? Because Christ provided a perfect rest. Perfect peace that comes from him. The shalom, shalom of God. The perfect peace. He will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind, his fantasia, the, the, his whole thinking is fixed firmly upon the Lord. Consider the cost and consider the, the consequences of rejecting that cost. Of saying, I see what you did for me, God, and I see the cost it cost you, the price it took to provide me this eternal life with boundless quality of life. But I just don't want it. I'm happy to live in my deficit. I'm happy to try and make it on my own. Reject you. Do you think the, the judge of all the earth will just let that slide? Do you think that he will just look over your debt and consider it a trifle, a bauble, nothing to be worried about? Oh, friend, do not be so foolish. If worldly judges take it seriously and must be governed by the law of the land, a judge doesn't have the right to be able to say, listen, you know what, I like you. You've got an, an honest enough face. I see that you're, you're disturbed and distressed about this and you're really upset. And I think maybe you do feel guilty for not paying your tax. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to let you go. Let it go. Earthly judges cannot do that because they are ruled by the law. If you break the law, well then there are consequences to that. And then you must pay those consequences. Earthly judges are ruled by an earthly system. Think how much more the heavenly judge who is perfect and does all things well and according to the law of God how much more will you have to suffer there is no getting away or slipping under the radar of God here Jesus is poking these men in the eye 
And he pokes you and I in the eye. He, he reminds us of what is required. Your salvation, if you're a believer here today, your salvation wasn't given to you in order that you can just have everlasting life, live forever, and do whatever you please, want, or desire. You are a citizen of heaven. Does it not say in the scriptures that you are a citizen of heaven, of the commonwealth of God? And as a citizen of heaven, the tax of heaven has been laid upon you. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Are you giving all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to him? Or are you holding back a bit? I'll give God my tenth. What does it say in all your heart, soul, mind, and strength there's a tenth? Where does it say that there? I don't think it does. Because it doesn't. God requires all of you. That is the tax of heaven. You are required to bow the knee. Do we understand what it means to bow the knee? You know, in our world today, when we, you know, you see, what do you call that silly thing? No, it's not silly, God forgive me. The Independence Ball on, on December the 6th, you know, in Finland. We see, watch it on TV, I don't. Sarah hates it, the fact that I don't watch it. You see all these lovely, well-dressed people and the veterans, may the Lord bless them. There are very few of them left. And they go and it's more celebrities now. And they go and they shake hands. We were invited to go and, and, um, and they're all dressed really well. And you, you see them all go. And there's a, a, the idea of a, of a party there. I can't remember what I was going to say. I just slipped straight in my head. But we are required by God to give our all. You can't have just a part. So we are required as Christians not to withhold or to, to hold back, but to give everything. Are you giving everything to him in your day and daily? No, we're not talking about once a week or once a month. Jesus said to these spies and the Holy Scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit says to you and I that we are to render to God the things that are God's. All your heart, all your heart belongs to God. All your mind belongs to God. All of your spirit belongs to God. All of your strength and action now, I'm not saying you can't do I'm not saying you just sit around all day and saying, God, 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 praise you, praise you, praise you. You know that we kind of sit in this hamster wheel, do nothing but, you know, you're in the car, you lift it around, praise you, Lord. And every time you finish the conversation, thank you, Lord. Amen. That's just nonsense and ridiculous. I, mean, I, I say that. I know people who have attempted that. You know, to, the, to always think about the Lord, to always have him in the forefront of their mind. And if he's not, well, then they've sinned and they, they ask for forgiveness and they start again, they push the reset and they, they try and get No, we're not saying that. But in everything that you are doing, you do it unto the Lord. You're working, you're working unto the Lord. Your employer is just a substitute for the Lord. He, you, you're working not for yourself. You're not working for your family. You're not working for your employer. You're working for the Lord. And you're doing everything you can do in order to bring Him glory. 
in every relationship that you have, that you're trying to produce the agape love. You know, this week as I was reading through these things, I was thinking, I love that word love. I love that word love. And in English, we've got a very poor language. We use the word love and pff, can mean anything, doesn't it? In the Greek, they were much more clever than we were. We all know that they have those three main words for love. You want to say them with me? You know, eros, you have phile, and you have agape. Agape, as Jeremy says it, agape, agape church. I know, he's English. But when we talk about love, and that God requires all of our love, and that our love for him should be demonstrated towards one another. What are we talking about? Is it the, the eros love? God forgive us. No way. That's not love, that's lust. We, in English at least, interpret that as lust. And that has no place in the church. Is it file? Friendship? That's a casual relationship. That's just like, you know, I... I kind of know you. But we don't really, we don't, our lives don't really touch. You're a name in a book of people that I know. But we don't really have any connection. That doesn't belong in the church either. File love does not belong in the church. That's friendship. And we, we're to be friends with one another, of course, but we're to be more than friends. We're brothers and sisters. When we talk about the agape love, I couldn't find a word. What, what, I was thinking, in English, what does agape love mean? I was thinking, benevolence. That's really, you know. In modern day English, we don't really have a good word for the word love in the biblical terms. The word that I came up with was charity. But people hate that word. You know, charity. <laughs> I don't need charity. I don't need pity. You know, and people get very upset when we talk about charity. You think I'm lesser than you, especially here in Finland. You think I'm lesser than you? People get all... They can't even give a person a cup of coffee for free. They have to put money in a free villa thing. You know? Take nothing for free. But really the word for love in the biblical understanding, in the context of church, in the tax that God has laid upon you and I is... Agape love. That we are to love one another. And that means that we are to be charitable to one another. That we are to show benevolence, goodness, undeserved goodness to one another. We are to be committed to one another above and beyond the call of duty. That there are bonds that hold us together that are invisible and eternal. You know the old saying, blood is thicker than water? You know, you know it's about your, your nearest and dearest, your brothers and your sisters, your mother and your father, well, your own tight little social circle are much more important than anybody else in your life. The blood of Christ is thicker than any water of this world. It supersedes family bonds. It goes beyond brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. It's an eternal covenant that keeps us together. 
And you and I are commanded to love the Lord our God. To love him. And how does that love look like? With all your soul, your mind and all your strength. That is what is required. That is what is required. It's not a suggestion. It is a tax laid upon you and I. As you are faithful in paying your taxes to the state, monthly, weekly, yearly, as you would never consider not paying your taxes, in this same sense, you must be diligent in your commitment to giving to God the glory he deserves. And that glory comes by your commitment to his bride. To the lifting up of his kingdom in this world. To the lifting up of his name. To the demonstration to this world that Jesus is God and that there is life and freedom and liberty and no other name but his name. That one day he will return. And when he does, with the shout and the trumpet of the archangel... The end has come. The Bible says that during that great battle, that the blood shall rise to the height of a horse's bridle. So great will the carnage be. The Bible says when he returns, heaven and earth shall pass away, that they shall melt like wax before the fury of God. The Bible talks about the destruction of time and space as we know it and the construction of a new heaven and a new earth. You are commanded by God to give your utmost for his highest. Jesus wasn't talking about taxation here in the earthly sense. He's talking about heavenly taxation. If you carry within yourself the image of God, and all of us are created in the image of God, then you are to return that to him. You have a solemn duty to pay back to him the thing that is his. What is that? Your life. Your life. Way back in the day when I was a young man who had hair and a waist, I was taught that we would pray, you know, oh Lord, come into my heart. Come into my heart. And we would talk about giving our hearts to Jesus. I don't really know what that means anymore. Our emotional center, our, I don't know. I much prefer that we, we surrender our lives to him. We recognize that our lives are lived in his service. That we are slaves in his household, elevated to the position of sons and daughters. We don't just give our heart. We give our everything. And we demonstrate that in all of our relationships, all of our connections in this world, but chiefly in our relationship to the church, in your commitment to your brothers and your sisters. How do I know that you love Jesus? Because you love your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? 
Look around you. How will the people of this world see that our faith is true and real and right if they see in us the reflection of themselves? Do you not carry within yourself the life of God? Jesus calls it the, like a city on the hill, like the stars in the night sky. Jesus said that we have salt within ourselves. We're not bland and tasteless like the people of this world. There's a difference, a savoriness about us. And that must be sensed. It must be observed. Now, I can't promise you that people will stand and applaud. These spies of the Pharisees, they recognized who Jesus was and how Jesus reacted and taught and said and that he showed no personal favoritism and yet they still rebelled against him and yet they still plotted his downfall and disaster yet in their hearts they were still livid and enraged at him they wanted him to die I can't promise you any different than that as it is with the master so it will be with the servant But I can promise you this. There will come a time when there will be no more tears. I can promise you this, that there will come a time when your life will be full of joy and peace and happiness. Not for a moment, not for 10, 15, 30, 40, 70 years, 80 years if you're lucky, lucky. But forever. Beloved Christ here in this little text dealing with the spies of the Pharisees, sidestepping their question, their trap for him. He then entraps them. He then calls them to respond. He then challenges them on their relationship to God. He seeks to set them upon the right path. And as he did with them, so he does too with us. It's all too easy to play the religious hypocrite. It's all too easy to say one thing with your mouth. Oh, Jesus, you're great. I love the Lord with all my heart. Jesus, you're great. Show no favoritism. And yet, in the same breath, reject him and rebel against him and seek to bring him down. God forbid that it should be that way with us, with any one of us here. Friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have never asked him for forgiveness and believed in him for salvation, do not withhold your heart. Do not stand in rebellion. Do not say, I'll do that when I get older. When I see, you know, the gray hair comes, the waistline is increasing, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Christ will return and time will be over. The Bible says today if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, repent and believe. Christian, are you as diligent in paying your tax to God? Now I'm not saying unto salvation, but these are good works that have been prepared in advance for us that we might walk in them 
This is the fruit of our salvation. The evidence of our faith is that we walk in righteousness, that we bring glory to God, that we indicate to the world around us that Jesus is the Messiah. Christian, if you haven't been diligent, if you're not diligent, if you are casual in your attitude, repent. Repent. Now I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about diligence. Seriousness. Oh, that you would enjoy the blessings of God. The Bible says that God will be no man's debtor. What you give to him, he gives back in abundance. You were designed that you might be a vessel for honor and not a vessel for disgrace. And when we function in the calling that God has given us, we are then activated. And as I said earlier, the shalom, shalom, the peace, the perfect peace of God will guard our hearts and our lives miraculously and wonderfully become so much better because we are working and functioning within the will of God. Beloved, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We are very aware, Lord, that we are deficient in so many areas of our lives. Lord, our mouths are too big. Our hearts are too hard. Our minds, Lord, perverted and full of the things of this world. Our knowledge of your word is shallow and casual at the best. Lord, there are so many things that seek to steal our attention away from you. Oh God, help us. The spirit of this age would make us half-hearted and casual and lukewarm. Please, our Heavenly Father, we pray to you. We ask you, raise up a steadfast and faithful heart within us. Lord, a sensitive spirit that we might walk in accordance with your word and keep your requirements. That Lord, that we might have that sense of commitment and love towards one another and towards this world. Please, Lord, bring glory to your name. Help us to repent, to turn away from the things that we have done and to embrace, Lord, the newness of life that comes through obedience in you. For those who do not know you, Lord, please, O oh God, convict them by your Spirit. You who are the, the illuminator, the comforter, the one who comes alongside the paraclete, Lord, will you not speak to their hearts? Give them no rest until they find he who is the King of peace. Oh, Lord, Lord, we pray, let your will be done. We ask this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name.